Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Today on the second episode of Season 2 of the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, Daniel Mullins continues his conversation with Doyle Lawson, a legendary figure in bluegrass and a Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame member. They talk extensively about the formation of his legendary band, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, a band whose former members have included some of the biggest names in today's bluegrass scene. There are also some special moments that you may not expect as Doyle speaks about his personal life and demons he's battled. So let's get back on Doyle's bus at the Bluegrass in the Bluegrass Festival in Lexington, Kentucky for part two of this in-depth interview with Doyle Lawson on season two of Walls of Time. You said you were in a sink or swim situation with with the gents, yeah. which is super cool, and that was really exciting. But after eight years, when did you know that it was time for a change and for you to, to go out on your own? Well, I had been probably wrestling with the idea for the better part of two years. Uh, I, I just I came to the point where I felt like that uh, the input and my uh, contributions to the to that and pretty much ran its its course. I just didn't know anything else I could could do. But we we let some opportunities get away from us that I wish we had taken advantage of. But again, when you're one voice and majority rules, you know. Uh, but we uh, we we had some chances. I wish we would have had to capitalize on. But, uh, you know, I've often said uh, I, I loved the guys. I loved, I loved singing with Charlie. Charlie had a very unique voice. And I've always said if you couldn't work with Charlie Waller on the road, you couldn't work with anybody because he was really easy going. And he was the type, his motto was smell the roses, you know. Well, that's all well and good. But sometimes uh, smelling the roses would get in the way of what you need to be doing. And, and uh, But, yeah. Uh, I always said, uh, you know, you could, you could take Duffy out of the gentleman. You could take Adcock, uh, Emerson, Goodrow. You could take me out, whatever, and they'll go on. But I said, if you ever took Charlie Waller out of the picture, that's the end of the country gentleman. And I felt that way then. I still feel it. His voice was one in a million, and yeah. you weren't going to find anybody that was going to be able to fill those shoes. Oh no, no. Uh, you know that kid that, that when they do the the tribute band, uh, Mike. Uh, uh, well, I can't remember his name now. He's 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 the closest thing I've ever closest heard, I've ever know. heard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but at, but at the same time, there wasn't but one Charlie Waller, and and he was a. Uh, I know when we'd be in the studio, uh, he was he had his he was weird about. Uh, by the time we got to where we could do tracks you know new vocal tracks uh cleaned up the the recording a lot because you didn't have all the the, ble- the bleed you know that from the uh, everything bleeding through the vocal mics but uh, uh he made usually one or two takes is all you you used and uh i'd key to mike i, I said y'all that sounds awfully good you, you like it yeah, you want to hear it? Do you like it? Yeah. He said, nope. <laughs> didn't listen to the playback. Finished up the mix. He didn't get it. No, no. 
nope, it's all good. That's just the way he was, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, was a, it was a good time. It was a good time for me. Uh, it did a lot for me in, in, in the advancement of my career. I, 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 I loved picking with Jimmy. I dearly loved picking with Crow and the gentleman, but life, you know, the, as you as you progress as a musician and a, as an adult, uh, your your path in life takes you down the roads you never thought you'd ever ever go. I had no intentions, had no aspirations, and ever. All I wanted to do in my early days was just to be on stage playing with a good band and playing music and, you know, obviously making money. But then as you get older, you begin to think, you know, and I, uh, I've often said that uh, it was a good place to be, but, uh, and I liked it when we would come up with ideas and it went in my favor, but I said, I never did like that losing part. <laughs> so, but, one uh, out of one is a lot better than one out of four, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, when Emerson left, why, uh, we, we kept the, the partnership at three. And, uh, but it was a good time. I, I, I can look back, and uh, I, I don't have one regret of that. You know, it, it gave me, uh, well, a guy told me, and I, I don't know, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think I've ever met Willie Nelson, but Willie's a very aware guy. He, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't thought. Well, he knew this guy that owned a, a club in, or this guy that owned the club in Johnson City knew him. I was playing the down home one night, and he, uh, he got on the phone. Willie was playing the, the, the auditorium in. in uh, Johnson City. I was talking to him. He said, "Man, you need to come over here." So they got a hot band here, and he told me who it was. He said, "Well, what did he leave the country gentleman for?" <laughs> <laughs> so he said he was running the band there, you know. Well, I, I wasn't. I was, yeah, yeah. I was the music part, I, you know. We, but uh, you know, with the gentleman, we had uh, Charlie. Did uh, he? He, he was the 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 guy that you know, the money guy. They, we he collect the money. Yates handled the road duties, and I took care of the music. And uh, you know, if Yates said we got to leave at one o'clock, you needed to leave at one o'clock. He knew that, you know. And so Charlie would pretty much uh, his his thing was, you know, he'd, he'd collect the money and go to the bank first. When we got back in and stuff like that. And he was happy that I would that I would do the music. He loved it, you know. And I, in picking out the material, I'd always listen to, it wasn't, when I listened to song, my first thought was, now how would, how would Charlie sing? How would, how would he sound doing this, this song here? Is this going to be right for him? You know? And if he didn't like a song, he said, no, it's just not for me. Cast it aside, you know. That took us forever. I played him in Casey's Last Ride, I'll bet you two years before, he heard it again, and the only thing I made a mistake, uh, I played it by an artist uh, who probably didn't have the best cut, or I don't know. But then he heard John Denver's cut, and he fell in love. I said, "Charlie, I played you that thing two years ago." <laughs> well, I won't record it. He said. <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, he it was a joy though. I had a good time. When you decided to form Quicksilver, you know, forty ish years ago. Yeah. How did uh? 
how did you come up with the configuration of that original band? About a year or so before all this came down, uh, Dick Friedland asked me to co-produce an album that he was doing on a group called Southbound. And uh, he wanted me to uh, do uh, one side of the album, and Eddie Adcock was going to do the other side. That band was Jimmy Haley, Lou Reed, and uh, the bass player, Doug, Doug somebody. I didn't know them. Uh, the mandolin player, I don't remember his name either, but they played around uh, Mount Airy and down that area, uh, North Carolina and South Carolina. Uh, but it's a good band. So I uh, I did that, and I uh, was really impressed with Jimmy's guitar playing, his rhythm. Of course, Lou could play anything. And, and uh, so when I decided, I first thing I started with was I wanted to find a good rhythm guitar player, and Jimmy was the first guy I thought about. So I called Jimmy and asked, told him what I was thinking about doing. Would he be interested in he said, yeah, ask about Lou. And uh, at that time, I don't think Lou was working in the band with him. He's doing something else. But then uh, he said, well, I'll ask him. And I said, well, you know any good band players floating around? Man, Jerry Balkan had been picking some with us since Boone Creek uh, disbanded. So... Yeah, they can't have broken up more than just a couple months before this, long. right? Yeah. yeah. And so one phone call that uh, they all came up and we picked a little bit uh, and then uh, decided we'd, we'd get together again. And the second time, uh, that's when the magic happened. It just all started, all of a sudden it started coming together, you know. And, uh, so that's, that's how it all came about. What were some things that you looked for when you formed Quicksilver to make sure that your guys' sound was different than everyone else? What were, what were ways that you intentionally made your sound unique? Well, uh, one, I guess the biggest thing that I, that I had in mind, I, I told them, I said, I don't want to be a one-dimensional band. I don't want to be where we can't step away and do something else because that's not what we do. I said, if we want to play uh, contemporary music, let's do it. If we want to play uh, uh, hard driving bluegrass, let's do it. Whatever, you know. I said, but the one thing I really do want, I said, I want to have a quartet like my dad had. And that was about, that's about the only thing I've had in mind, you know. But in the early days, we would do all kinds of stuff, you know. Uh, uh, even we do a little swing number of one. I don't know what it was, but me and Lou and Terry would would play triple fiddles and Jimmy play guitar. And I don't remember what the song was now, but uh, and, and then we but we would do rather than playing three part harmony, we would uh, the, the middle part. We would we'd all just it was like a Dixieland thing. Everybody would improvise, you know, and it was it was fun. People liked it. Some of the stuff we tried didn't quite work, so we I just put it. Put it aside, you know. That's pretty much uh, the way we we went into it. And I realized probably another thing that I thought about was the fact that uh, with with uh, with JD and, and the gentleman, I pretty much 
my reputation was established more or less as a tenor singer and a mandolin player, not as a banjo player. Uh, although some people remembered seeing me with, with Jimmy. Yeah. But then the second time I worked for Jimmy, I played mandolin and sang tenor. You know? Yeah, that was what, so, around 69 ish, yeah, just uh-huh. for a few months? For a few months, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, so I figured a way, one way to break that, to break the connection or, or a sense of comparison would it be to put my vocals someplace else? Was it so happened? You know, Jimmy and, and Lou both excellent singers. They can both sing lead or harmonies or whatever, and that's kind of the way it, just, it sort of evolved into that. You know, and it that took that uh, that link of comparison away. Well, he sounds just like he did with a country gentleman. You know, yeah. yet at the same time, I did some tenor work, and and but I wanted to did. I wanted to disassociate myself with what I had been and what we were, to, yeah. what we were to become, you know. Like a that was then, this is now yeah. type of approach. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins's hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass. Your first album, the the first Quicksilver album, huge hit contemporary bluegrass, and you followed it up with an all gospel project, correct? <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, you know, gospel records are always a part of bluegrass, but to do it for your second record and to do it and have it sound unlike any other bluegrass gospel record to that time, that uh, had to be quite a risk. <laughs> yeah, with a... Probably, uh, well, yeah, it was. Uh, fact is, all my peers uh, and all the the people in the know said that won't ever work. Nobody will buy that, you know. And uh, so I guess it was a, a it was a it was a it was a case of conviction on my part about what the people were liking to hear when we were on the circuit and uh, thrown in with a big bunch of stupidity in some ways, you know. <laughs> but yet I felt like. And I told Barry Poss, I said, you don't, he said, well, wait, let's wait four or five albums. And I said, you don't see what I'm seeing. You don't hear what I'm, you're not out there, but I am, you know. And, and uh, so he, he said, all right, go ahead. You know, and, uh, so the result was, uh, one of the things that convinced me was when we started doing stuff like that, we, Bill Harrell was doing a festival in Mineral, Virginia back in those days. He books us on Sunday morning, and we go down to start the stage, and I had my mandolin, and Jimmy had his guitar. And uh, so they, Lou didn't have his bass, Terry didn't have his banjo. And I remember somebody said, 
Say, where's your banjo? He said, I don't need it right now. And so we go down and we do a, a, an hour of gospel music, either a cappella or just a mandolin and a guitar. And about 15 minutes into the program, I looked at the stage sitting at the bottom of the hill, and up on the hill, I believe every musician in the park was standing up on the hill watching that, you know. And so it kind of, kind of gave me a, a sense of, well, we're on to something here, you know. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I never, I, I knew that I wanted to have a quartet because Dad sang out the old books that you'd order from James Devon and, and uh, Stamps Baxter and people like that. Uh, and uh, but I liked that kind of singing. And uh, so uh, I borrowed heavily on that that type of quartet. Which, and, which was so unique because... Before the Rock My Soul album, the primary acapella in bluegrass, which was very minimal, was Stanley style acapella, which is way different than what you were wanting to do. Oh yes, like yeah, night and day different. Yeah, uh, well, the Stanleys were more on the, towards the uh, the primitive Baptist, more primitive Baptist, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, then, uh, what? Well, you know, George Yance was the bass singer for the Cathedral Quartet for many, many years, and he told me one time when I was at the quartet convention, uh, he said, well, Doyle, he said, we sing out of the same book. We just do it a different style. Absolutely. And, and he was right. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. And, but anyway, uh, so I recorded that album, uh, and I I wasn't there to hear it, but somebody told me later on that uh, at WAMU, I believe it was, they had a four-hour Sunday morning show called Stained, Stained Glass Bluegrass. And the guy said, we got a new gospel album. Let's see what it sounds like. And, and I'm told uh, that he played the first side and just flipped it over and played the second side and it broke and said, I think we need to hear that again and play the whole album again. You know? <laughs> so, uh, when I heard that, now I, that was what was told to me. I, uh, yeah. Uh, but I thought if that's the case, and because uh, I will, I'll be honest with you, I was a little apprehensive. But I, my thought was, as much as I love this, the gospel music like that, surely somebody would like it. And I would look at the crowd, and when we were doing things, you know, and a lot of stuff that we recorded, they hadn't heard yet. But what we were doing, they loved it, you know. And uh, so, I thought, surely, as if, if somebody will like that, as much as I love it, and but I never ever thought that it would be to the, to the degree of acceptance that it came to be. Uh, and I opened up the album with On the Sea of Life, which quickly became the mainstay of all the gospel songs I've ever recorded. That's still probably the most popular one. Yeah. With those two albums, those, fir those first two, you quickly established yourself as a leader in both uh, bluegrass and gospel music, which is... It it's almost seems like contradictory, you know. Um, which it not that it not that it is, but usually someone is really good at one or the other, yeah. and uh, y you are without question a leader in both. How how do you balance that line? How do you balance your traditional uh, bluegrass fans uh, and your gospel fans as well? Well, uh, you probably uh, one way is you try to. If when you when people are talking to you, you listen to what they're saying, and uh, for instance, uh, the uh, the last gospel album was the Burden Bearer, 
had 20 songs on it. The reason for that was I, I heard more than just a few times. Well, you know, you don't do as many re acapella recordings as you used to. Well, so I said, okay. I called the record company. I said, I want to do a 20-song album. Well, they don't like that. I mean, sometimes because, you know, you get into the, the mechanicals and uh, the royalties and all, and all yeah. that. It's a, you know, and I, but uh, Mountain Home, I recorded for them for 15 years. And, and they would pretty much just, you know, had the green light. They were, they'd go along with about everything I wanted to do, you know. And I, for that, I'm grateful, you know. Uh, so I did 10 acapellas and, and 10 uh, with, with music. Except I didn't want to. Because you can't do what I, like like the LPs, you can do all one side and then. Yeah. But I thought well, I'll just I'll mix them. Well, now you take twenty songs and you're trying to get that thing to flow, using acapella, and instrumentation, and you're trying to make it cohesive and flow, and not drag and be dead in spots or whatever. Yeah. It took me forever to sequence. Oh, that I thing, bet you know. it did. <laughs> I don't. You wouldn't believe how many Wait, times I worked. Tempos and intensities and yes. keys and everything. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a job, you know. But uh, that was another thing that I always paid attention to was the sequence of a recording, uh, how they flow. You could take a great album and kill it with with the sequence. Absolutely, it has, it has to flow and. Uh, I always paid attention to that. Never used a filler song. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I could use that for a filler. Uh, I despise that term, filler. You know, if the if the song is not good as the others are, in your mind and in your heart, then you're doing yourself a disservice, and also the people that go buy that recording. Yeah. Try to get the best song. I don't, you know. Put the best material that you got at that time that you think you have, and put it out there. Uh, don't don't use fillers. That's a cop out. That's cheating. Yeah, yeah. For me, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> As a band leader for forty years, how have you always been able to maintain a consistent Quicksilver sound? while still not being afraid to adapt, whether that's to the talent in your band, adapt to always reinventing yourself and remaining um, you know, current with the times? How do you do that? How do you adapt while still maintaining that level of consistency? Well, I don't change for them. They mm -hmm. change for me. Okay. And, uh, and when I say that, again, I go back to the fact, I'll tell them that if you're coming here thinking you've got to be the guy that was here before get that out of your mind you don't have to be but they have to adapt to the material that was here prior to them getting here yeah and learn and learn that style adapt to the way that the, the the song was performed and when they've been here for a while i'll listen to them and i find what i'm looking for that will feature them and give them a strong focal and vocal perspective and uh, uh Jay, uh, Jake, my guitar player, he, he's what I call a country grass singer. Uh, he, he His feet are steeped in country and bluegrass. So he takes one of those old uh, tear-jerking tear love ballads and just wrings every bit of the emotion out of the can, you know, and, and it's good. Then I got Jerry, who's who's a big 
hard bluegrass singer, you know, and can belt them out. So uh, I, I try to find the piece of music that will, in addition to what we're doing, the new music will will introduce them to the people as well. And uh, what that does is it, it erases pretty much any thought of comparison between them and the people that were here before. By finding material, I like how you said you get them to adapt to the style and the material that you've done, but you're also actively seeking stuff that showcases their oh, ability. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Quicksil the Quicksilver sound. You know, the original band had their own distinct approach, but then when you look at other iterations of the band, they you've, you've played to different strengths. Which is which is do. amazing to see over a forty year career. <laughs> well, you have to. Yeah. Again, you have you you find what works, and I've held on to the basic the basic pattern that 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 became D L and Q over the years. You know, I've held on to that. What's the but, basic uh, pattern? Give it. Give us the secret well, recipe I, here. I, I, I wish <laughs> I could put a wish I could put a finger on what exactly that is, but but. Uh, for lack of a better uh, explanation, when you put on one of my recordings, you don't have to guess who it is. That's exactly right. That's the pattern. You know, there's there's a certain sound to that. Just like my heroes were the, were that way. You know, there there's a danger, uh, in my opinion, sometimes when you if you go if. If you go with the flow, that's one thing. But to get caught up in being one of many when when nobody knows who's who, yeah. that's a danger, you know. And so uh, that is def- detriment to the music. Now today in, in today's world of bluegrass, man, we, these young cats are playing great, great music, you know. So I think probably. Uh, in uh, some ways, uh, I wish they would uh, sometimes pay a little bit more attention to vocals. Uh, uh, but that's, again, that's not being critical, just being observant. Yeah. And uh, But, uh, man, these these young cats playing stuff that it's amazing, you know, how, how much it's, how it's advanced, you know. So... Uh, what I started with pretty well is still with me today. You know, once we once we weeded out and got things to where that we that we knew what was working. You know, and and uh, so that that came pretty much with the first couple of albums that 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 was pretty well started to mold itself. You know, and that's what I've kind of worked with. But at the same time, you have to you you bring in new guys and you have to you get them to where they adapt to what you're doing, and then you find. The, their strong point, and you utilize that. Uh, and one thing I tell the guys, I say, look, when you come here, if you're hired to play guitar and, and sing, but I decide somebody else uh, is going to do a better job for the overall sound, and I and they sing the lead on that, it's not because it's not because they're better. What it, it's because the band as a whole. Sounds better. Yeah. So you, you, when you come here, you if you're willing to to do whatever, yeah. you know, if I want you to sing the low tenor or the baritone or whatever or the tenor, 
whatever be prepared to do that you know well, and that's one thing too when you when you look at your storied career as a band leader you've not been afraid to have people change parts or even change instruments if it's what's best for the material or for the sound sure, or for the absolutely. band absolutely yeah it should be yeah you should do that you know and uh so uh people you know you you have I don't think that probably anybody loves the the first generation bluegrass music any more than I do. Yeah. Uh, there's something about that first generation music that will never be surpassed, in my opinion. And there's something about that first generation that's the reason you do what you do. Obviously, exactly. You know. Yeah, and exactly, uh, and it people have to understand that. Uh, from 1945 until today, nothing has stayed the same. Nothing. Not one thing can you think of that's that's like it was in 1945. I use 45 as because that's, in my humble opinion, that's where the the, the blueprint was solidified in what we kind of patterned the bluegrass music from. It was Absolutely. That, it was that that band at that period in time. I'm not taking anything away from Mr. Bill's prior efforts. That, yeah. Nothing at all. Nor Lester when he worked for Charlie Monroe, nor Earl when he was in North Carolina, or with Lost John Miller. That's neither here nor there. But I'm just saying factually, when that band came together and, they, and Earl was put in that position, that was the the link that we needed to have to make it what it is today I'm not, that's so you just can't. like you spoke about chemistry earlier the chemistry with uh you know how you said ge- chemistry with jimmy and jd and paul yeah that was a spark just like the chemistry uh, with those first yeah. five yep. with monroe and flatten scruggs and chubby and cedric yep. was unique yeah it was and uh but uh, the, all those you know all those guys they were all doing they were all doing the music that you know Monroe was a star on the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, I mean, people debate. They debate all the time about uh, who who the justifiable, you know, justifiable father is. Well, it's really not. Uh, I don't think that's even worthy of discussion. Uh, after all, he was the star on the Opry. Now that does, in my mind's eye, that doesn't take one. Thing away from Lester and Earl in their abilities, or Chubby, yeah. and and Howard Watts, Cedric. I'm not taking anything away from their their abilities, nor their nor their contributions to the music yeah. at, at all. But the fact is that Monroe was the star of the Grand Ole Opry. He he had the platform. He had the platform yeah. and the vehicle to get to get it done. And the vision, and and, yeah. and he had a, and he had a stroke of luck when Earl Scruggs came to Nashville. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to give it where it is. You yeah. Know? Uh, so I, but to discuss uh, the debate, uh, I, I don't, I don't think it's necessary, but because of the, the music, uh, that was so magic, you know. And, and then of course in '46, you had Ralph and Carter starting to get more serious about the music. Ralph was playing with a thumb and one finger at the time, though you know, yeah. uh, because that the thumb and two fingers, man, that was revolutionary. You know, yeah. nobody could figure that out really, like Earl was doing it for a while. You know, 
but to the credit of, of, of Dr. Ralph, uh, he didn't try to play like Earl. He played like Ralph. He figured out the role and the pattern, but his banjo playing is uniquely his, just as Earl uh, is was. Don Reno the same way, you know. And uh, so then you get into calling calling the role. They're all they're all playing the same instrument, but they're saying, "Yeah, but this is how I feel about it." Sonny Osborne looked at the creativity of Sonny, a genius man. <laughs> he can do things with a banjo that you just said, "Well." That shouldn't really be happening, but it is, you know. Uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of Sonny and, and, and Bobby, you know. Yeah. But uh, And then Alan Shelton, another guy that was a stylist. Oh, yeah. And, and, and here comes Crow, who's got that that big, hard-driving separation of the notes so clean and things like that, you know. So, uh, But the music is like anything else. It's going to change. I accept that. What I want to see happen and hope is that if it, and it will change, and it is changing, but that they hold on to the values of the tradition of the music, the foundation. Yeah. And keep it based around that. You can, you can listen to my records down through the years and see that I've, I've, I've stepped a little wide of the mark. And probably will again. But, but the basic fundamentals and the patterns of the music is, has always been there. Absolutely. So I, I, I hope the young kids who are coming on now will will remember that. And I would encourage any of them that if if they haven't taken the time to really go back and listen, uh, not to go back and listen and have to play that, but listen to it and and hear what they were doing. And remember that. Yeah. As we look ahead to 2020, there's one place you need to go to make sure you maximize your time and your potential. BestSelf.co. BestSelfCo provides all sorts of productivity tools to help you get the most out of your day and your year. Right now in my office, I'm looking at a wall calendar from BestSelfCo that I've used all year long, and it's a great way to see where you've been and where you're going, and you know that I've got a... Uh, 2021 in the wings ready to go for when uh, the ball drops on new year's eve get the best self planner brand new six month productivity tool to help you break down uh, your months and your weeks and get the most out of your time they also have a best self journal that you've heard santana talk about it's made in 13 week increments perfect for the college student or someone that's just looking to achieve more on the clock and off the clock check out the best self journal best self planner, their wall calendar, their weekly action plans that I use at the beginning of the week to make sure I have all of my to-do lists in check. They have project action guides and so much more. Bestself.co. That's bestself.co. Use code bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. As we look to maximize 2020, let's all do it together. Go to bestself.co. Use code bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. And now, back to Walls of Time. One word that absolutely does not scribe Doyle Lawson is apathetic. You care, and you've still got such a hunger for this music and for this business 
and for your band after 40 years? Where did your your drive and your hunger come from after all these years? Well, but from my parents. Really? My my dad was a, he was a, just a common working laborer, you know. He worked to pay he worked day jobs and or factories or whatever and he had farmed. Sometimes he did both. Uh but he was he was a perfectionist. Didn't matter what he was doing. Uh and he expected his boys to be the same way. Uh and uh, he said, I don't care what you're doing, whatever you wind up doing in this world, if you don't do it the best you can, then you've wasted your time. And so he made examples out of me and my brother early on working in the cornfields. The summertime, we had to, he would plow the, the corn or the tobacco, whichever we were working. And uh, we would, we had to hoe it, you know, cut the weeds away and hoe it. And it had a certain way, he showed us how he wanted it done. Periodically, he'd stop plowing and walk over to where we were. He looked at me and said, that's not how I showed you how to do that. Took the hoe out of my hand, did it. Said, see that? Yes, sir. He said, go back and start over and do it right. It didn't take too many times I figured out, do it the best you can the first time. So uh, my mother, she instilled in me from a kid on. She said, you can do you can do anything, be anything that you want to be with willpower, determination, and perseverance. You can do whatever. There's no limit to what you can do. And so with those two things, you know, doing as best you can, keeping your standards high. I set my standards really high. I've often said that if you have a problem with my standards, uh, you need to raise yours because I don't lower mine. <laughs> and... Uh, and that's not being boisterous. I don't mean it to be ugly. All I mean is, is I wanted to, I want to be the best I can be until the very end, you know. And and I know I'm I'm 75 years old, and knocking on 76. I know there's going to time come a time that I'll that I'll need to step away. Yeah. I want it to be when I can step away. I don't want to be like the fighter who takes on one more fight than he should have. When the time comes, and it will, Father Time takes care of that, you know, I know that. But I, I want to walk away. I, I hope I can walk away with a, a sense of dignity and knowing that, that the whole time I was out there, I gave it the best I had. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've overcome uh, personally and professionally? Well, the biggest challenge I had personally was uh, was I, I battled the the alcoholism for a long time, you know, and, and uh, the problem with uh, with uh, that I found as far as my own personal situation is I was the last one to admit that I had a problem. Uh, I kept finding reasons why I was not having a problem or didn't have a problem. And uh, I I tell the kids at uh, the church that the the easiest person to lie to is yourself. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I was and I was a master at that. I, I could lie to myself for sure, you know. Uh, when it dawned on me, I must have quit a thousand times. When it dawned on me, really, that I had probably gotten as low as I could get. I mean, on the exterior of me, everything was great. Dan was great. We were, you know. 
working hard and steady, busy. But I was a wreck inside because I, I had I had my demons that I, I couldn't get rid of. And uh, I'd gone, we was going to play Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I think it was the first Sunday of May, 1985. I stopped at uh, my, my friend John Paganoni's house. Pag, John had built mandolins for me for years and uh, uh but if I was in nearby, I'd, I'd go. To, I'd stay at his house, and uh, he had a shop in his basement. So we we sat there probably that Saturday night. And I think about it's close to five o'clock in the morning, and uh, just talking about mandolins. I was drinking, but. Uh, I had to go to Gettysburg, so I got up. I said, I better catch a couple hours of sleep. So I got up, and I went in to, to get a shower, and I was shaving. And I looked in my mirror, and I, I saw the real me. And I, I'd gone as far as I could go. And I said, God, you... I, I'm begging you to take this away from me because I can't go on. That day, I gave up the alcohol and the cigarettes, and I went to Gettysburg, and a fellow brought me a fifth of Johnny Walker Red. Uh, I had introduced him to somebody. He had a, some kind of a, a particular uh, kind of a rare instrument. I forgot what they, what they called it, but... Uh, I introduced him to David Holt, I believe it was. But anyway, he said that was a, a thank you gift. And I said, well, I appreciate it, but I, I can tell you right now, uh, I'll never drink it. But I took it as, you know. And, but you know that I never I never craved it. It's just, it was gone. That was in 1985. This is 2020. In 2002, I had a quadruple bypass, and one of the things my cardiologist recommended for me to do, he said, I would like for you to, to drink a, a glass of four to six ounces of Merlot red wine uh, in the evening. And so the red flag, I said, now, Doc, you, you know uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Well, no, he said, I, I, yeah, I do. But he said, listen, he said, I prescribed you these little pills that you're taking. And you take them like you're supposed to. So I'm prescribing that. Take it like you're supposed to. And I said, I don't know. I'll try. It probably took me a, a month or two. But my focus was to, you know, okay, if that's good for for my cardiovascular, I want to do that. You know, I still wanted to work, and so I went to the I went to the package store, and I said, I want uh, I want some wine, but I don't want it to taste good. And and he he went, he pointed his chest, rubbed his chest. He said, for your heart, you caught it. I said, yeah. He said, my wife does the same thing. So he says, now this is the best. He said, Merlot does what it's supposed to do. So I went home and I tried it. 
Now, I don't I don't drink it every day, but I used to prefer if I sit down to a meal, I'll have four to six ounces of glass of Merlot. I have one, and that's it. But I can tell you this much. I know one thing. If I pop the lid on a can of beer, it'd be over. That was my vice. I was smart enough to know that God delivered me from that. A lot of that's up to me to stay delivered, though. And I know that if I if I went back and did that, I couldn't drink one. So I just don't do it. I like the I like me the way I am now a whole lot better than I like the way I was then. Yeah. How has a how does your faith impact the work you do uh both professionally and your personal life? You you've touched on a little bit. It's all based on your faith. You know, the Bible says by grace in the Ephesians two eight. By grace through faith we're saved. Not by works lest any man should boast. My faith is what gets me through a lot of a lot of rough spots uh, in, the, in my professional life and my personal life, you know. Uh, and I know, I know that my faith in God is, is, has carried me through a lot of places and will continue to do so. I know that everything that I've ever needed in due time has been provided. Uh, with the understanding and the, the knowledge that God doesn't work on our time. It's his time. And we have to wait. The Bible says, be still and wait upon the Lord. For uh, for us weak mortals here, that's the hardest thing in the world to do is to be patient sometimes, you know. But uh, but faith carries me through. It's what I hold on to. It's my anchor. Because I know that in time, uh, we don't live in a perfect world. We can't expect to go through this world with no problems. Yeah. If we went through, if this was a perfect world, nobody would want to go to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, but uh, but my faith is, is uh, a daily part of me, and knowing that uh, that I'm weak and I'm failing miserably in so many ways, He still loves me. And uh, and he knows that that I hold on to him. Uh, in my darkest hours, I hold on to him. So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look 
look sharp. So that's why if you use code Bluegrass, you'll save 10% off. Whether you want the beard oil, the beard balm, the uh, Samson's Hair Care Pomade, or all three, check it out at samsonshaircare.com. Use code Bluegrass to save 10% off. It's all at samsonshaircare.com. Code Bluegrass. Part two of our conversation with Bluegrass Music Hall of Famer Doyle Lawson on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. And when we said things got deep and that Doyle got emotional and uh, really uh, got vulnerable with us, we really meant it. Wow, what a really great moment with Doyle there talking about uh, his past and some of the demons that he faced and conquered and uh, went on to uh, continue to be the great artist that uh, he was. And um, uh, and definitely a real and raw side of Doyle that uh, a lot of us maybe didn't know about um, his struggles with alcoholism in the past. But uh, I think it's great you know, for him to share some of the issues that so many of us from one form or another face through our lives. And uh, see how he handled those and, and conquered those and, and went on to uh, continue to make fantastic music. I've known Doyle my whole life, and it was really uh, really personal for me to get to have some of those intimate conversations with him and to share them with uh, our listeners. I think it is a great reminder that even people that we look up to have overcome adversity and challenges in their life, and whether it's someone out there that's maybe listening as a young musician or just, you know, if you're just a fan and just a a person to know that we all have things that we have to overcome. No one has it all figured out. No one's perfect. And uh, by sharing uh, how we overcome adversity is one way that we can grow stronger and that we can, uh, we can help one another out. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that Dole was honest and, shared that with us all um i've been around Doyle a little bit you know his work over the mountain home label uh through the years and i'll tell you the guy has stories we could do and we probably should figure out a way to get back with him and do we could some do more, a whole um, doyle season if we wanted to <laughs> yeah i mean the guy just do stories of the, the different things he's he's seen done adventures he's had uh he's got a great story about uh being late for his wedding and with his uh, driving through town, trying to find the church with his best men at the time, Keith Whitley, <laughs> that alone is worth uh, a podcast episode. But yeah, Dole's got great stories and uh, it was just great to hear uh, his you know entire journey between these two episodes from his beginnings in, in Tennessee all the way uh, through uh, basically his, his Hall of Fame uh, induction and where he is now. So great stuff there from Dole. I was glad to talk to Dole. One thing I, I've always been impressed with with Doyle and Quicksilver and and we touched on it in the episode is Doyle never phones it in you would think that after this many years that uh that I don't know he still hasn't lost his spark he's still excited to go on stage and to make music and to always continually reinvent himself and uh it's it's inspiring to me and should be inspiring to anybody whether you're a musician or not uh to see someone that still is that passionate about what they do and making it the best they can. Yeah, the one thing all the folks that have been through Doyle's uh, group uh, played in his band, and if you even if you talk to Doyle um, after a show, you know one thing they'll all say is uh, he's pro and he will 
stand there in the merch line and talk to every single fan until the last one leaves. He's that personal. He's that accessible. He's that real and uh, true professional. And uh, so glad we could kick off the season going back through and talking uh, with him and going through the entire timeline of his career. Thanks so much, Daniel, for uh, grabbing Dole for this interview. And uh, so glad it was the, uh, the the two kickoff episodes. Not to get too off in the weeds, not to digress, but you mentioned you know how he always takes time for his, for his fans and is so accessible. You know, we always talk about that's one thing that's special about bluegrass and showing the the courtesy to a fan and taking a little bit of time for them can make a huge difference. Um, cause there's a guy that we all love that he was telling me one time, uh, he was four or five years old and he was really shy and he went, I can't remember if he said he went with his dad or grandpa to see the country gentleman when Doyle Lawson was in the group and they get to the record table after the show and the gentleman that brought him, I can't remember if it was, it was some sort of family member said, you know, this is, uh, this is so-and-so, uh, he's trying to learn how to play the mandolin. And Duel said, you're trying to learn how to play the mandolin, son? And the little kid kind of was a little sheepish and kind of shook his head, yeah. And Duel said, well, you need to, you need to play a real mandolin. And took the mandolin off, Duel took the mandolin off of his uh, neck and uh, put it on uh, this little kid's shoulder and said, here, hit a couple chords on that. And made the kid's day, and he wanted to be that much better. That little kid was Dan Tominsky. So oh, wow. the <laughs> taking a little bit of time, especially for a kid, but – uh, for anybody that uh, whose life has been touched by your music can always make a difference, and you never know how big that difference can be. It was so great to have Doyle on uh, the podcast, especially to kick off Season 2. Uh, be sure to listen and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, you can listen at our website, wallsoftimepodcast.com. That's where you can also pick up your official Walls of Time podcast t-shirts. Yes, big bright yellow t-shirts with a de- design by Maggie Rainwater. Looks really good. And uh, also check all our uh, social media platforms out as well. Facebook at Walls of Time and Instagram, Walls of Time and Walls of Time Pod on Twitter. Next week, we're sitting down with one of the coolest cats in bluegrass music, period, Dudley Connell. Yeah, Dudley Connell, of course, of the famed Johnson Mountain Boys and Seldom Seen and really great upbeat interview. I love Dudley, and I think if you're new to Bluegrass and just listening to this uh, podcast and getting familiar with some of these artists, you're going to come away from the interview with Dudley being one of your favorites. And uh, if you're a big Bluegrass fan, of course, I'm sure you're all excited about uh, hearing uh, Daniel's interview with him. He's such a fun personality, always has so much charisma on stage, and he yet really shines through in uh, this interview I recorded with him backstage at Sam Jam. And it's personal for me. Of course, everyone knows Dudley Connell was member of the band Longview. And my dad played banjo in Longview for the first three records. So I was around Dudley Law as a kid. So it's always super fun uh, to get to hang out with Dudley and Sally. And I even have a picture of Longview at my desk. So I'm looking at it right now. So we will visit with Dudley next week on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Uh, Be sure to listen and subscribe. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.